Due to the age of these recorded messages, there are parts of low quality that are hard to understand. We have done our best to eliminate these and make it as clear as possible. All is different. Uh, its aim is somewhat different. Its context is different. There is a tremendous amount about this book of Deuteronomy, which is different to the other four uh, books or parts of the Pentateuch. You know, it is often likened to John's Gospel. And Deuteronomy is often its relationship to the other four books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, is often likened to John's, John's Gospel, the Gospel of John's relationship to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are history. John is an interpretation. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are history. Deuteronomy is an interpretation. John's Gospel is a spiritual interpretation and underlining of the life and significance of the Lord Jesus. Deuteronomy is a spiritual interpretation and underlining of God's dealings and ways with his people from their beginning. So Deuteronomy in many ways is quite different to the others. We expect it to be different. Even the most superficial reading of the four Gospels reveals to us a real and essential difference between the whole style and method of the fourth Gospel compared with the other three. So the style and method of Deuteronomy in many ways are quite different to the other four books of the Pentateuch. Furthermore, Deuteronomy is prophetical. Deuteronomy is prophetical. It is prophetical literature. What do we mean? We mean simply this, that Deuteronomy is not a book of laws like Leviticus or parts of Exodus. It's not a book of simple, clear teaching, like, uh, shall we say, again, Leviticus or Exodus. It's not even history, like Genesis or Numbers. Deuteronomy is prophetical. We mean by that, it is the interpretation of history and it is the interpretation of the laws and regulations. Teaching is one thing, prophecy is another. In the New Testament, we have different gifts. We have the teacher and we have the prophet. The teacher is quite different. His ministry, his function is quite distinct to the prophet. Deuteronomy is therefore prophetical. It is the interpretation of the past, the present, and the future. There are some people who think very wrongly and misguidedly that prophecy is all to do with the future. Um, I suggest to such people that they make a very real study in the Bible of prophecy, because you will often find that prophecy has a lot to do with the past, and an even a good deal more to do with the present. For when you think of Isaiah and others, you find that they're often interpreting past events as well as future happenings, and a lot to do with the future. So here we find Deuteronomy is prophetical. We mean by that that um, it is taking up past history and present experience and the future, and interpreting it to the people. We have already seen Moses as a lawgiver. We have seen Moses as a ruler. Now we see Moses as a prophet. And indeed, the one name that perhaps above everyone, everything else given to Moses is the prophet. Deuteronomy, therefore, reveals to us the heart of Moses. If you want any book 
in the Bible, which is a very spontaneous and in some ways, as far as most is concerned, a quite, um, uh, how shall I say it, he didn't, he didn't um, mean uh, to reveal himself. Uh, it was not deliberate. If you want one book which reveals a man's heart, it is this book of Deuteronomy. We, I suppose, will all agree that um, if you have read this book, you will hardly find anything in the Bible to excel the beauty and loveliness of Deuteronomy. Some of the most beautiful phrases in the whole Word of God are found within this book. Indeed, it has often been hailed as one of the greatest pieces of literature of all the uh, of all human history. Certainly, um, Deuteronomy has something different to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in the beauty of its um, style, and not only the beauty of its style, but the beauty of its language. One is very much reminded, and this, by the way, is just an aside, of, of Moses' authorship of Deuteronomy when you read Psalm 90 and 91. Because Deuteronomy and Psalm 90 and 91 can be read as commentaries on one another. They betray the same beauty of phrase and the same majesty of phrase. Moses seemed to have a sweep about him, um, about his language and about the way he defined things and set forth things. And I think sometimes we do Moses a great injustice by considering him to be a very hard man, a sort of legal, technical type of man. But Deuteronomy reveals a very different kind of Moses. It reveals a man who at one moment may be full of the most majestic and fiery indignation, but at the next moment is full of very real gentleness and love. So, at any rate, we find that there is something quite different about this book of Deuteronomy. Another point I hope that you have noticed whilst reading it was the direct simplicity of its language. Um, I don't know how many of you have read Deuteronomy, this part that you should have done, or those of you who will uh, be reading Deuteronomy, but I think you will all be quite surprised by the direct way in which um, uh, it is written. You all the time get this kind of thing. We did so and so and so and so. Now you all remember that, he said. Uh, you remember that we came to such and such a point. This is the language of a man who is speaking amongst friends about events that were known to them all. And that is why, in many ways, Deuteronomy is so very thrilling to read as a document. Forgetting the chapters, forgetting the verses, just reading it through from beginning to end, if you have the time, it won't take you all that long, you'll be very, very struck by the simple, direct language that is used and the style. Then I think we ought to take note of one or two technical facts, too. This book is the most quoted of all the volumes of the Old Testament in the New Testament. There is no other book in the whole Old Testament more quoted in the New Testament than the book of Deuteronomy. It is also a very strange thing that there has been no book of the Bible more attacked than the book of Deuteronomy. Now, those of you who know anything about biblical criticism will know that Deuteronomy is the one that suffered more at the hands of higher critics than anything else in the Bible. It's split it up, torn it apart, smashed it, so-called authorship and all the rest of it. They've done everything they can to discredit um, Deuteronomy. We find that it is quoted approximately, or alluded to, approximately 96 times in the New Testament. Then you find that in the Old Testament it is quoted or alluded to 356 times. 
Then, another interesting fact. It's intimately bound up, obviously, with the four preceding books. We find that it quotes Genesis 30 times, Exodus 94 times, Leviticus 61 times, and Numbers 74 times. So you see that this book of Deuteronomy sums up the Pentateuch. It goes back over the other four books and sums them up, interprets them, underlines the principle, emphasizes what the Lord's really after, and that is why the rest of the Bible takes so much from Deuteronomy. It is an interesting point that when the devil came to the Lord Jesus and tempted him, he answered him three times out of Deuteronomy. He never went out for, he never went to any other book for his answers. He said three times, it is written, and he each time referred the devil back to the book of Deuteronomy. The old Puritans used to say that like David and Goliath, the Lord Jesus took five pebbles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. He only used one, Deuteronomy, and the one killed Goliath. Still, that's just something for you to think about. The Lord Jesus only used Deuteronomy, but he triumphed by his knowledge of this one part of the Pentateuch, and it says the devil left it. Now, what about its authorship and its date? Well, the first thing is this, that it is manifestly the work of Moses. If we look at um, Deuteronomy 31, verse 24, we find this. It came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the word of this law in a book until they were finished that Moses commanded the Levites to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord saying take this book of the law this book of the law is the book of the law that we need to continue to fire down when he removed the rubbish from the temple and rediscovered the book of the law by the author. So, uh, it is itself uh, claims to be the uh, work, humanly speaking, of Moses. Possibly, of course, as we said last week about numbers, there are a few additions. It is very interesting in the Orthodox version to see the parentheses that there are in this um, book. Now, again, you find in brackets that you see in the comments about what succeeds or what succeeds, which might well be the work of another scribe, nevertheless, inspired. And then, of course, I think most of us will agree that the last few chapters of Deuteronomy were probably written by someone else, possibly Joshua or someone else. I know that, again, some of the old Puritans used to believe that Moses was so inspired that he wrote the account of his own death. And whilst I don't for a moment question the possibility of a man being given such a vision, since he was given a vision of so much else, I think it is probably more likely that Joshua um, uh, compiled the last few chapters of this book of Deuteronomy. When was it written? It was written, and here is something I think of tremendous interest. It was written a month before the death of Moses. So this book was written in the 120th year of Moses' life. And it was written at the very end of his life. And we are told expressly that Moses' vigor, Moses' soundness, had not in any way diminished. He was at the end of his life as full of health and soundness and strength and ability as he was when he was a young man. So this is not surprising. We have here then a document written within a month of the death of Moses and probably within two months of the children of Israel crossing over into the land. So in a sense, if you can only read Deuteronomy with that background, it makes it much more thrilling. Here is something coming out 
of a man who's been used of God who has a long, drawn-out history of God going back for 120 years. 80 years of that, 120 years, of the most vivid and deep, routine history. And now, just before he's about to die, and just on the very threshold of people going over into the land to possess it, he gathers them together and speaks to them these last words. It was written in the uplands of Merv, that in those days would have been very fertile and green, and overlook the plain of Jordan, and particularly Jericho, so that in the sort of sight of the promised land, the people sat while Moses taught them and instructed them and interpreted their history and their laws to them inside the land. That, at any rate, is something about the um, authorship of the day. So the roughly again approximately about 1400 BC. Now what is the key um, to the book of Deuteronomy? I think most of you will know that its Greek title just means the second law giving, or even better, um, to give its real uh, meaning, as far as we're concerned, a repetition of the law. Deuteronomy is a repetition of the law. It is the giving again of the law. Its Hebrew title is once again taken from the very first few words in chapter 1. These are the words. This is the Hebrew title of Deuteronomy. These are the words. Or the repetition of the law. The second law given. And you know... And although t tonight we're not, we're not going to um, uh, emphasize so much this side, uh, we as children of God ought to take note of the words of God. When the Lord speaks to us, it's a tremendously important thing. And we should always be careful of any kind of despising or belittling of the word of God in any shape or form. You remember that so much happened to the children of Israel because they despised the word of the law by Moses. So we must remember that, and if you have read through the book of Deuteronomy, you will have noticed, I'm quite sure, the accent that there is upon the word of the law. Moses is continually saying to them, Remember, the Lord spake to you. He is continually saying this. The Lord spake to you. You saw him speak out of the cloud, thick darkness, or cloud, and darkness. And he spake to you out of it. So we have to take note of the word of God. The key, however, to Deuteronomy is not the word of God or ministry, however great and wonderful that is. Why do you think that the Greek title is the repetition of the law, the second law given. Why do you think the Hebrew title is these are the words? With the evident thought of going back over something, talking about something, you read the context. Surely the key to this book is that there is an essential element and quality that the Lord is looking for and which alone can answer him. Which, if it is not there, renders everything else obsolete, spurious. And which, if it is there, with perhaps much weakness, much frailty, means that the Lord can go on and accomplish his purpose. I believe emphatically, truly emphatically, that Deuteronomy has got its place in the Word of God with all its repetition of that which has already been given just because the Lord wants us to go right to the root of the whole matter. 
The Lord is so concerned that he has given us an, a whole book which in mu much of it is taken up with what has already been stated. Seems a waste of time. The Lord takes up history, which we've already got. He takes up law, which we've already got. He takes up a covenant, which has already been made. And he restates the whole thing. Well, why? Because the Lord is looking for an essential element which alone can satisfy him. In other words, the Lord can have a people, he can have them in the land, he can have the services, he can have the regulations, he can have a national life, a national character, national vocation as such, and yet it all just be empty as far as he's concerned. The thing is built according to pattern. The thing is built on the laws that he's given. It's observing the statutes that he's given, and yet the essential element, the thing which alone can satisfy his heart, is missing. And because that one element is missing, the Lord is dissatisfied, he is unsatisfied. He is not answered. It does not correspond to him. Do you get what I mean? He does not correspond to him. It does not meet him. It does not answer to his nature. I think you see that that is touching the root of this book. And the root of this book is love. That is the essential element that the Lord is looking for. Many people like to think that the Old Testament is altogether void of love. They like to think that it is all a question of law and regulations, shadows and symbols. But we make a great mistake. The Lord's nature has not changed from that dispensation to this dispensation. God is love. Patterns, regulations, a kept law, and observed ordinances cannot possibly ever satisfy the heart of God. They may satisfy religious people, but they cannot satisfy the heart of a, of a living God. God's essential nature is love. Therefore, he has to find something that corresponds to him, that answers to him, that can meet him. And therefore, that inner word means he's got to find love. Love can only mean love. Love cannot be satisfied by duty in another. Love cannot be satisfied by sheer, apish obedience in others. Love cannot be satisfied by just an observance of ordinances in us. Love requires love. Love must have love. Love, you see, will never rest till it gets love. That love can only be answered by love. And thus, you see, this book is written with that in mind. The key to this whole book is love. Now I'm going to surprise you, I think. I think. Do you know that love between God and men, and men and God, is hardly mentioned in the Bible to Deuteronomy? In only one place is love mentioned. Exodus 20 and verse 6. Them that love me and keep my commandments. That's all, that's the only mention you search. Now I'm not saying that love is not illustrated in those books. And I'm not saying that love is not implied in those books. It's implied from the beginning. But what I'm saying is this. Love is not explicitly revealed in so many words. Deuteronomy, if you take this concordance and look at it, is full of love. Everywhere it's love. And the main um, aspects of love are God's love for us and our love for God. And then our love for one another. 
Of course, if you want to look up the word love, you will find that Isaac loved Rebekah. And you will find that Jacob loved Joseph. And you will find other um, quotations about love. But it is interesting that you will not find once in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers the mention of the love of God. Not once. God's love for us, for humanity, is not even mentioned in those four books. He waits to the book of Deuteronomy before he starts to speak about his love for us. And only once does he speak of our love for him, and then when he gave the Ten Commandments. And then in an aside, if you look at it, you will find it very interesting, I think, if you would like just to, to uh, turn to it, you will see that it just says this in chapter 20 of Exodus and verse 6, showing loving kindness unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. It's just that part of the Ten Commandments, showing loving kindness unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That's the only mention of love for the Lord. So you see, we have, I think, discovered the key to the book of Deuteronomy. Why does the Lord go over the, over the law again? Why does he again define the covenant? Why does he go through a review of their history? Because he wants to define an essential quality without which he can never be satisfied. Never be satisfied. This is why, in so many ways, John's gospel is linked with Deuteronomy. Everywhere in the book of Deuteronomy, we find the basic necessity for love. Everywhere. For instance, for the first time, we find that behind all God's dealings with us is his love. And this Moses states very clearly. He says he loves you. He loves you not because of anything, he just loves you. Not because you were better, not because you were the most, not even because you were a minority. He just loves you. And because he loved you, he chose you. And he waited. Because he loves you. And so then he begins to depict the history. He says, You know that thing. You know that the uh, Ammonites, uh, the Amorites, they hired Balaam to come to you? Do you know why the Lord confounded Balaam? Because he loved you. Well, we never knew that before. Now we're discovering what lies behind this thing. God loves people. And so all through just a little observation, that is, all through this book of Deuteronomy, we're beginning to find that behind their history is God's great love. In the same way that we can take great encouragement, the things we don't understand, the many things we don't even know, we shall one day discover behind them all in love is the love of God. So, you see, it's simply that this book shows us, reveals to us that behind all God's dealings, from the beginning, right the way through that thin line of the good seed, right the way down to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses, to a people, and right the way through now, 40 years in the wilderness, the love of God has been behind us. Fashioning, molding, leading, guiding, instructing, preserving has been the love of God. And we find also that nothing can satisfy God but perfect uh, love. And something more, which I think will interest us all. Moses tells us that love is the answer so far as our security and preservation for people. He is in virtual fact saying to the people of God, if you love the Lord, you'll be kept in the ways and the will of God. If you just slavishly obey the Lord, you may fail. You may fall. But if you love the Lord, you're bound to be the means by which the Lord will keep you in his will and his way. 
destroys And that is why the Lord is always after love and why he's so afraid of first love declining. Because he knows that when love goes, there is the possibility of every kind of evil. Love is not, a, is not only the only thing that can satisfy God, but it is also the means by which God can keep us in his ways and in his world. And then I want you also to notice how the book of Deuteronomy develops some other words from this word love. It speaks, I think you will find, of quite a little um, uh, series of words, and they, and they recur and recur again. To obey, to cleave, to serve, to fear the Lord. And they all come out of this word to love the Lord. They're always found somehow in connection with the word of loving the Lord. Obeying the Lord, cleaving to the Lord, serving the Lord, and fearing the Lord. Bound up in love. Doesn't this somehow put the soul? if I may use the word, into this whole question of obedience and service. You see what the Lord is just simply saying is that the kernel of it all, the heart of it all, is love. Get that, and out of that will come obedience, and it's right kind of obedience. And out of that will come fear of the Lord. You know what fear of the Lord is? It's not that other terrible thing. Fear of the Lord is a word a gentle fear of doing anything that could somehow upset or grieve the Lord. A tender conscience of an upset Lord. Sensitive nature to anything that would cause him This is fear in the Lord. And it comes out of love. If you love a person, you will fear them in a master. You put it like this. <coughs> you love a person a lot, and uh, you know that it was, oh, we don't know why, but uh, to keep a budget of a would upset them absolutely no end, and they would just be mortally upset somehow or other. You can't say why. You just know they can't sit budget of a So you love them very much, and they love you very much, and you want to uh, buy a budget of a But you see, when it comes to it, you think, oh, I could do this. I could do this. If I do that, I would not do Isn't this lazy? It's a gentle understanding of another person's sensitivity in this moment. And this is what it means to fear the Lord. There are some things we can do, but we don't. Because we know that some of the Lord wouldn't have a fear, wouldn't have a thought that way, wouldn't have to be found longer. Just because we know it will upset the Lord. We are very, very uh, sensitive to the Lord. On All these things come out of this one question of love. You love a person, you cleave to them. You cleave to them. You can't let them go in the right way. You cleave to them. Like Ruth said to her mother-in-law, where you go, I go. Where you live, I live. Where you die, I die. Where you are dead, I go. She was cleaving to her mother in God's name. And that is the same with us. If we love the Lord, we'll cleave to him. Where he goes, we will go. Don't give me a Oh, I must follow the Lord, whithersoever he goes. I must do it. I must do it. Oh, dear, it's so awful, but I must. We love the Lord, then we shall cleave to the Lord. Whithersoever the Lord goes, we go. We shall say to him, just the same. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I live. Where you die, I die. Where you're buried, I die. We cleave to the Lord. Let's go to Then I want you to notice another very wonderful thing. Moses was a very old man. Now, and I like to think, although perhaps I'm taking a liberty, that um, the Lord couldn't really reveal to Moses in his earlier, more vigorous and uh, um, active type of uh, manhood, he couldn't reveal to him what the essential element was. 
You see, Moses was a man of a hundred and twenty, and he had a history of deep experience with the Lord, and of a lot of observation. Wisdom comes from observation as well as experience, you know. So some people have got a lot of experience, they've not got a lot of wisdom, because they don't observe things. Wisdom comes not only from experience, but observation. Reflection, meditation, we see by observation what is happening. We observe in another life, what the Lord's doing, how is he acting. And you see, Moses was a man of great observation, as he said, of great observation. He watched and he watched and he observed and he observed. And I believe that when he was first told to give the law, he gave it. And you know, it must have broken Moses' heart to the reaction of the people. Then that long history of rebellion, of murmuring, of, of gainsaying, contradiction, Everything he said, they sort of said, oh, Moses. A lot of time for Moses or his ministry. And you know, he made those of the family, what in spite of it? What is it? And when he saw not just one, but multitudes destroyed because of their rebellion and manner, when he saw them fall to the end of the end, the whole generation was wiped out, including his brother and his sister. And he alone was left to Joshua and Caleb. Don't you think that out of that kind of agonizing experience and occupation, he learned his And what did he learn? He learned that the basic elementary necessity of love. And that without love, you could only drag a people through the wilderness. And even then, they would choose to die in the It was love, he came that was needed to somehow or other fire those people and give them faith, faith worked by love, to believe God and go over into the unknown and take the land. Do you see what I mean? It was simply that in a most wonderful way, Moses at the end got right through to the root of his own problem. Why? With all this revelation of God, with this, this mighty ministry, with this tremendous breaking in of God, so they actually saw him. This cloud of fire by night, this cloud of pillar, this pillar of cloud by day. Why, why, why? And the people often, you know, people often say nowadays, if only we could see, people often say, we have had a history of provision in this place, have we not? And history of provision in it, you still have people who go back. You still have people who conflict. You still have people who murmur. You still have people who rebel. Because seeing the Lord, even if the Lord came here and stood here visibly in the midst, would not affect the situation. Within a week, we could have a terrific eruption and half the company be up and arms. And yet, just a week before, we see the Lord suffering in the midst. you see, the thing is not what you see, it's not what you know, it's I believe the Lord refused Gideon's request to send him back to his blood. He said, Why? If Moses was allowed to get into that, they would not believe. No, no. You've got here a great secret. The heart is the focal point of it. And the love of the heart is the focal point of it. So Moses, at the end of his life, has come right to the root of the problem. He has got the explanation for a generation dying. He's got the explanation for a generation which saw so much, and yet somehow contradicted and fought with the Lord and died in the He's got that. Deuteronomy is, the, is the, the ministry, I think, of a man with a broken heart. And that is why I believe that again and again in this book of Deuteronomy, you find Moses suddenly says, and the Lord is not going to let me say it. Have you noticed that? Not once, but again and again, Moses brings this little personal message, and the Lord won't let me go. He also has learned a big lesson in the world. And you all note, I think, too, how that uh, the Lord is 
birth is in this book of Deuteronomy in such a way that everything's related to it. Um, it's always the law. In fact, without being irreverent, you almost find that to read Jehovah, for instance, in the version as it is in this standard version, um, is almost tired after the while. Because Jehovah comes in almost so much. Jehovah this, Jehovah that, Jehovah the other. This in relation to Jehovah, that in relation to Jehovah, the other in relation to Jehovah. What is really, why does Moses reiterate the name of the Lord as he does? Because I believe again it's linked with his question of life. It is simply that the Lord is presenting himself. Not a destiny. Not so much a vocation. Not so much a salvation. He's presenting himself as a person to be loved. To be taken. To be possessed. And he is asking you enter into such a marriage with me. This then is the heart of this book. The outline of the book I'm not going to <coughs> spend so long upon. Um, I want you to notice just a few things. I think that the most important thing, and indeed with this type of book, with its method and style, what I've said about the key, really, I think, has covered the book. You can read the book now, I think, if it's in mind. But I think we have a few more facts which we can follow up now, and I think will help us. What is the outline of this book of Deuteronomy? Well, there are three things first that we should like you to know. First of all, Moses is addressing a new generation. The old generation has died. Hence the need for this review. He is speaking to a generation that Many of them had actually seen things uh, spoken about, but they were very young. They were only up to the age of 20. And um, they had uh, now come to the point where um, the, uh, their parents died, all their relatives had died, except their cousins, their young cousins, their own age, and now they were listening to Moses reinterpret and review the past. Then the second thing I want you to notice is the emphasis in the book of Deuteronomy upon the land. And you will notice that the emphasis upon the land, God's purpose, the land, and it's the possession of it. And I think if we were to turn to two or three scriptures, it would help us in this matter. First of all, if we turn to Deuteronomy 4, verse 20 and 21. Could someone read that, please? I don't really need to do that, do I? This, I've only taken this as one illustration, or one or two other scriptures. The Lord's continually stressing what he put them out of and what he's taking them into. All the way through the book of Deuteronomy, he's stressing what he's taking them out, taking them out of and what he's going to take them into. Now turn over the page to 37, verse 37 and 38. I wonder if Brother Shaw could read that to us. Jesus is a play on words. He brought thee out to bring thee in. He brought thee out to bring thee in. Now, <clears throat> look at chapter 6, verse 23. <coughs> Wrong. Well, you see, uh, you've just got there three references to this one thing, and yet I know if you wanted to, to underline it, you would find nearly every chapter has got some reference to where they were brought out of and what they're being brought into. So you've got really here a great emphasis in this book upon the purpose of God and the land. Now, what can we learn from that? What does the land always symbolize in Scripture, the promised land? It doesn't symbolize the church, does it? Our inheritance, yes. But can you think of anything else? To put it in other words, what is our inheritance? Really. Christ himself. Can we put it in more specific terms, New Testament terms? The fullness of Christ. The promised land always symbolizes in uh, scripture the fullness of God, the riches to be exploited, the treasure to be found, the land to be uh, farmed, yielding its increase and its abundance. It speaks of the fullness of Christ, the land flowing with milk and Everything is abundant and full about this land. 
and not something permanent. Now, you see, Deuteronomy is speaking to us about the fullness of God. Now, take your mind for one moment back, please. For one moment, right back to our earlier study. Genesis spoke of God's purpose. Purpose. His beginning. How he dealt with individuals with a tremendous purpose in mind. Exodus spoke of the redemption of the people and the revelation of his dwelling. God was going to, uh, to build a dwelling place out of redeemed ones. They were the stones quarried. Now he was going to build the living stones together. Leviticus spoke to us of how we could become part of God's dwelling place when we are so sinful as poor material. Numbers spoke about the absolute necessity for our being responsible if we were going to come into our full inheritance. Deuteronomy tells us this, that the fullness of God is God's great object. Even the church is a means to an end in that, in that The church is the fullness of him that fell all in us. His body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The fullness of God, then, is linked with the church. But the church is a means to an end. This simply means that no one can experience or come or achieve, come to the fullness, attain to the fullness of God, without knowing a deep experience of the church. The church is the means to the end. This is why the book of Revelation was written to show to us that here in our locality, as we were built into what God was doing here on earth with all its difficulties, its contradictions, and so much else, so many problems, God was building us into something eternal, which was to be the vessel uh, of his fullness, without knowing a deep experience of the church. The church is the means to the end. This is why the book of Revelation was written, to show to us that here in our locality, as we were built into what God was doing here on earth with all its difficulties, its contradictions, and so much else, so many problems, God was building us into something eternal, which was to be the vessel uh, of his fullness for all eternity. Something which was not in itself the end, but the beginning. I don't believe that the last chapters of the Bible is the end, as so many people foolishly believe. That's the curtain. It's the curtain as far as Revelation goes. But it's only actually the curtain on time. It's the beginning of eternity. And I believe we have a tremendous future that none of us know about, and none of us have even been able to dream about, that is before us in the future. What is God's fullness? Scientists now are trying to unravel something of the fullness of this universe. They have spent centuries on some things and still have only put the very circumference of the body. They've got nowhere. What about the fullness of God? Do you think the Bible holds all the fullness of God? I do. I believe it's got enough for us and all that's necessary uh, for the life down here and, the, and our ways to it. But the fullness of God is inexhaustible. And that's something that if you and I are built into what God is doing here on this earth in Richmond, then we're going to be part of that in eternity. We shall be the best in eternity. And we shall be exploring the fullness of God. What a thing, what a wonderful, mighty thing to be able to be launched upon such, a, such an endless uh, exploration. So you see, Deuteronomy ends the pages. In some ways, in one way, it's the end of the word, as in one way. It's the end of one part of the world. It's quite watertight in many ways, uh, the Pentateuch, and in that sense it tells us, here you come to the fullness of God. So let us take note of that. And then the other thing I want you to note is interesting because it's bound up with this. There is a specific place in the land which is continually referred. Uh, now, let us look at this, because it needs a little bit of investigation. Um, from chapter 12, I might say, onwards, from chapter 12 onwards, a particular...
particular place in the land is continually referred to as the only place acceptable to God. Well, that's strange. That is very strange. Isn't anywhere in the fullness of Christ acceptable? Why does God say there's a certain place in the land which is alone acceptable to me? Don't you go offering your offerings anywhere. There's only one place in the whole land where I will accept. You can offer them elsewhere, but they won't be Let us look then at chapter 12 and verse 5. Could someone read the place for me? And David, could you read verse 11? Verse 13, take heed thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of the tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. Now we can't go through all the references to this place where the Lord will cause his name to dwell. But from chapter 12 onwards, it continually comes in, in all kinds of aspects. Let us look at 16, chapter 16, verse 6. This is the Passover. Up to now, everyone's eaten it in their homes. Now they're told you are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover lamb in your home. You must sacrifice it in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Then in the Pentecost, the um, uh, feast that we know as Pentecost, um, in verse uh, 11, Thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son, thy daughter, and so on, that are in the midst of thee, in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Then verse 16, the Feast of Tabernacles. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. So you see, um, we find that this place is, is mentioned in the land. Now let's turn to chapter 31. This is the reading of the law which Moses enjoined. Chapter 31, verse 11. When all Israel is come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, Thou shalt read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So you see <coughs> that it's not only the land which is God's object, but evidently this place in the land is the only place which is acceptable to God. There is a place, in other words, in the whole land, the circumference of the land, where alone you can bring your sacrifice and make your vows. What does this speak to us about? What does this show to us? It reveals to us simply what I've been saying, illustrates what I've been saying about the fullness of God. We cannot come to the fullness of God except by way of the house of God. The house of God is the only way that we can come to the, full, to the fullness of God. We can be Christ. Uh, we can know something of all that Christ is, but yet not be accepted with God. We've not tasted a full salvation. We're living a partial type of salvation. We um, are in, and yet we're not really accepted. Our service, our ministry, our offerings, our attitude is not really acceptable because it's not related to the place. It doesn't matter where you live in the whole land. If you're related to God's house in the right way, you're accepted. And later on, Solomon, as we shall see when we come to it, takes up this vent here and says, it doesn't matter where you are so long as you turn toward the house, lift up your hands toward it and pray to the God of Jerusalem. God will hear and announce you. He says, it doesn't matter if you disperse the far ends of the earth. If you will only turn toward the house of God at Jerusalem, lift up your hands and pray, God will hear, will answer, and will deliver. So you see, this is just an illustration to us of relatedness to the house of God. The fullness of Christ is related to the house of God. 
Now, very simply, we find there is a fourfold division in the book of Deuteronomy. First of all, their history is reviewed from chapter 1 to chapter 4. Then the law is reinterpreted to them from chapter 4 to chapter 26. Then the covenant is renewed with them from chapter 27 to 30, and then we have the farewell of Moses. I don't think <coughs> we um, need them so very long upon this now, but do let's just look a little more at these four divisions. <coughs> the first is that Moses reviews the history of the people. And he draws out in these four chapters five simple things that we can learn from. The first is this, the sovereignty of God, of the Lord, in their history. If the Lord is ever going to bring us the fullness of Christ, it's going to be sovereign. While there must be a reaction in us and a response in us, it's going to be the sovereignty of God and this is through the Lord's sovereignty. He loves you and he chose you. He delivered you. He gave you. He led. All the way through Moses is stressing the fact that it's Jehovah that does it. Jehovah gave this to you. Jehovah stirred you up. Jehovah is leading you. Jehovah's fighting your battles. So it is the sovereignty of the Lord. The second thing we learn about history that he brings out is the Lord's lordship over his people. He must be Lord. Over their life, over their home, over their position, over their careers, over their work, over their movement, the Lord must be Lord. And that is why he takes them back to the book of Numbers and elsewhere, and in their history he just lets them know that it is the house of God and the presence of the Lord which, which is the, um, uh, the basic thing about their going on uh, with him. Uh, are we related to his lordship? Is he really lord? Uh, no tribe must be out of place. No tent in any tribe must be out of place. The Levites must not be out of place. Everyone has work was apportioned. Everyone's position was appointed. Everyone was given something to do and everyone had the key to what they had to do. No one could move in that way. They had to become under the lordship of the Lord. And then another thing that he speaks about, Moses learns from their history, is this. Faith in the Lord is absolutely necessary. He does dwell upon the spies going in. And he says, you know, when the Lord told you to go over and stand, you wouldn't go. And we spent 40 years in the world. Faith. Faith is over against natural wisdom and reason. Logic. Logic is a terrible thing. Rationalism is a terrible thing if the Lord doesn't break it. Once it's broken, it can be used of God, but when it's unbroken in all its rigidity and its unbelief, it's a terrible thing. And here you've got the faith. It's an absolute necessity if the Lord's going to get his people through with the fullness of God. You'll never get that otherwise. Logic will tell us we can't get there. Too much against us and too much within us to stop. Ever getting there. And then again, he, he brings out another thing, and I think this is really the very wonderful thing he brings out. He tells them <coughs> he has learned from reviewing the history of his people, he has learned that the Lord is the meaning of their life. He says, He is thy life and the length of thy days. He is thy life. What does this mean? It just means this. The Lord delivers. The Lord instructs. The Lord interprets. The Lord fights the battle. The Lord defeats the enemy. It's the Lord all the way through. You take the Lord away and you're left with nothing. Put the Lord in and you've got everything. This is just the history of the people of God. Take the Lord away and what have you got? The Jews have left us nothing. What have they left us? <laughs> Commercialism. And it is about the only thing we've ever learned got from the Jews. And the Lord said it here in the book of Deuteronomy. You will lend to all nations. 
nations will always be in her debt because of the book of Deuteronomy. And that law gave her as a gift. But everything else, what are the Jews left us? They've left us no great monuments to their civilization like the pyramids or anything else. They've left us no great uh, cities as such. We have no wonderful uh, records as such. We have the Bible. And we know that alone has come by the most remarkable and sovereign way. The Jews were a poor people. They didn't know. You see, the Lord was the meaning. Take the Lord away from the Jews, and he has nothing. Put the Lord into the Jews, and he's great. The Lord is the glory of Israel. Israel's glory is the Lord. And the last thing we learn in this review of history is that the key to their history is the love of the Lord. It, we find it simply in uh, chapter 4 that we've read already. He, because he loveth you, he chose you. It says in chapter 4 and verse 37, Because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them. The key to their history was the love of God. And Moses speaks of three things. He speaks of God's faithfulness, he speaks of God's mercy, and he speaks of God's jealousy. These three things are bound up with love. If God loves us, he's faithful to us. If God loves us, he's merciful to us. If God loves us, he's jealous. It is a terrible sin to know the jealousy of God. Terrible sin. If you're loved by God, God is very jealous. And that is why the Lord will sometimes put us through some hard ways just because of that. Not the wrong kind of thing, the right kind of thing. Moses in his review of history reveals to us that it's love is the key. Why did the Lord deal so harshly with them? Why did the Lord slay them? Why did the Lord turn against them? The Lord was a jealous that a people for himself. And then you see the laws reinterpreted, and I can only read this with you from chapter 4, chapter 26. Love is the key to the law. And if you want to find that out, well, you'll find it again and again in, the, in these few chapters. In chapter 5, verse 10, we have exactly what we find in Exodus 20, verse 6. Then, if you turn 6 and verse 5, chapter 6 and verse 5, you find this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Then if you turn over to chapter 7 and verse 9, you find, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, who keepeth covenant and loving kindness with them that love him. Then you look at verse 13. He will love thee and bless thee. Then chapter 10 and verse 12. Now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him? And then in chapter 15. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them. You see, you get this reiterated again and again, right the way through. Love is the key to the Lord. The Ten Commandments were given because the Lord wanted the people who could love him. Love was behind the law. And, you know, um, love is the answer to giving the Lord his rights. If we love the Lord, we'll give the Lord his rights. What are the Lord's rights? Well, you'll find them from chapter 12 on. What are the Lord's rights? The place which he shall choose. That's the Lord's rights. Not where you think to make your offering, where you choose, where your eye sees, where somehow you feel you agree, where you feel it would be nice to go, but the place where which the Lord thy God shall choose to cause his name to dwell, there thou shalt offer thy This is the right of the Lord. And then if you go on, you find that the Lord's proving people in a rather mysterious way. He allows um, false prophets to come amongst them. In chapter 13, if there arise in the midst of a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. Why does the Lord allow false prophets to rise in the midst of his people and say things that turn everyone upside down? They said they've got a revelation. The Lord's broken in and told them something. 
they are big, they are mighty, they have got something tremendous. You know how always uh, these people are, are raised up because of ground for the enemy. And uh, they come forward with their great ideas and so on. And why did the Lord not stamp them out? Because it says in verse 3 of chapter 13, your God, the Lord your God, proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. If you love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, you're given a kind of discrimination which is right. You're given a discernment which is right. People have got the stupid idea that love is sentimental non-discrimination. Nothing of the kind. Love is not discriminated in you. You can't love it. Discriminating. Now, by the fall, we have a wrong kind of discrimination. But in the Lord, we have a right kind of discrimination. We're not sentimental. We don't shut our eyes. We see. And when there are false prophets and dreamers of dreams, we see. We see. And we don't walk in their ways and we don't hearken to their counsel. We just close our ears and we withdraw from every brother that walks in it. So you see, <coughs> love is the answer to giving the Lord his rights. And you'll find that it says about relationships, supposing you've got a mother or father or a brother or sister, the trust.